You're listening to The Pointed Nose, a podcast produced by Ophion Media. I'm your host, Adam Reese. My guest today is Immaculata Casimero, the communications officer of the South Rupununi District Council in Guyana and a co-founder of the Wapichon Wij Women's Movement. I'd like to start by just asking very basically, what is the uh, Wapishan Wij Women's Movement and, and what's the organization's work um, involve? Oh, well, the Wapichan Wij Women's Movement is the women's arm of the SRDC. And <clears throat> we have started conversation many years ago to have to form this movement so we can empower women and girls um, in the Wapchan territory so they can know about their rights, you know, they can become economically self-sufficient and, you know, develop, um, co- um, also um, contribute to community's development. And today we have been doing work. Our dream became a reality. We, we have visited 21 communities within the last three years where we did trainings and and we did um, workshops with girls, you know, talking about rights, looking at laws um, that protects women's rights, and also to look at different issues that need to be addressed um, as it relates to um, the challenges that women face in their communities. Mm. And, and when you say 21 communities, is that the 21 villages of Wapichan? Yes, all 21 villages of the Wapichan territory. Wow, amazing, amazing. Um, so before we started the interview, you were talking about how um, land tenure rights is not just a general uh, indigenous issue, but it's also a women's issue. I wonder if you could explain that further. Yes, why land tenure security is important for women. As women, as indigenous women in particular, we are the backbone of our communities. We nurture children. We are the ones who keep the languages going, the traditional ways of life, the stories um, of the land, and so on. So it's very important that women are part of, of, of this, and that it's very important um, to women the, the lived environment and why the environment exists or why indigenous lands is it as it is, is because of indigenous women. So it's very important for our security and also for future generations. Mm. And I was talking to um, Gavin Winter earlier, who's also um, part of the SRDC, mm-hmm. um, and he was talking about, uh, after the interview, we were, we were chatting about it, and he was telling me that um, even like some of the traditional stories are now maybe being used or maybe used in the future to make claims on different parts of land so that if like uh, he was mentioning some mountains that have personhood that appear in the in the uh, in the traditional stories and also have personhood and like so yeah I mean I don't know if you can talk about how, how those yes I be. think it's it's important because when we look at the land it's like a mother it's it gives us everything that we need. Mm. And that's what we depend on. You know, when you talk about the rivers to someone else from outside, you might just see it as a river for swimming, but it's important for our life. Um, it's important for us as women to, and that's where our partners or husbands get fish from to put on the table to feed the children. You might just see a mountain uh, with forest, but it's not just a mountain and forest. It, it has wildlife. It has plants that you know women and we um, 
we need to uh, like treat our children when they're sick and all of mm. that. So it's not just as it is. Everything is very important. And yes, stories are important. And up to today, I know as indigenous people, we do not really have those stories documented, you know, are written. But these stories are passed on from generations to generation. And it continues, you know, it's like more customary teachings, or we say, um, teachings of our ancestors that today we still practice, we still adhere to it, even in today's time, no matter how much technology exists, it's still very important to us. Mm. Mm. And you've talked a little bit about this, but I, I want to ask you to sort of go a little further into it, um, if you don't mind. Uh, what was sort of the necessity behind um, establishing the Wapishanwij women's movement in the sense of like, if you hadn't established it, what would be different? Well, <clears throat> women across the world face so many challenges on, on a daily basis in their lives. And likewise, it's the same in the Wapchan territory. You know, you've seen women, um, you know, who, who would sometimes tell their own stories, experiences of challenges, you know, with children, of how to get a job or even get, get basic needs for their children on a daily basis, you know. And um, talking about, uh, for example, family planning, now you have like um, sexual and health reproductive rights and all of that. And so th that is something that was rarely spoken about in, the, in our villages. So what we wanted to do, even though these different, I would say, projects, programs exist within the coast, it is existing in Guyana, but often it doesn't reach into indigenous communities. So we really wanted to have this movement formed so we can you know, educate women, raise awareness, Women can know their rights, they can speak for themselves, they can be involved in decision making. They must not be able to voice their concerns. So that is one of the reasons why we from the Wapchan Wage Women's Movement. And today we have seen its impact. Um, we're still working because it calls for a lot of resources. And when you lack the necessary resources, there's nothing much you can do. But if you're given those resources, you have persons who are trained um, in you know, capacity building built in women who can also teach now or pass on that knowledge to others, well then you can have a total change, a total transformation in the community. So that is something that we really wanted to do. Um, and that's why the Wapchen Weir's Women's Movement was formed today. We have um, 13 women, we call the core women. There are 10 trained, the three are not trained, but they're part of us, and we, we normally would speak about different issues, address issues, take reports from different communities, and try to also have these different issues that affect women uh, addressed by the relevant authorities in Guyana. Mm, mm. And, and speaking of resources, like, um, so, so I, we were talking a little bit before, and I understand that I think the Wapishanwij women's movement does control some uh, financial resources. Yeah, one of the good things is because of the work that we have started, you know, we lack the resources, but it's always important to expose women to different, um, I would say, forums or different conferences, meetings, you know, where you get to meet different people and also learn from them. So because of that exposure uh, for the key women within the movement, we were able to, you know, hear about the different 
um, opportunities that exist for women, how we can apply for funding. So we, we did that. You know, we applied for our own funding in 2020, just, um, I would say, um, after, during the pandemic almost. Yes, we applied for our first funding, and it wasn't something big. It was just like, um, I would say, Canadian dollars, 10,000 Canadian dollars. But it worked. We made, we made it do. And over the three years, we were able to get 10,000 Canadian dollars every um, year so we can do our work. And yes, we have access to funding. We control our own funding as women. And we, since we now have a strategic plan um, that was adopted by the General Assembly of the SRDC, now we are um, implementing that strategic plan. You know, it's not that something that we want. It, it came out of all the women who attended um, the workshop with us, you know, where we together or collectively um, develop the strategic plan and in the plan says what are our long-term goals, what are our short-term goals, and what we should prioritize, you know, and, and what projects we should be doing. So for now, again, we have been able to acquire more funding through the Equality Fund, which is based in Canada. And is that like an NGO? It's an NGO. It's a feminist organization. Mm. And so we have been able to acquire some funding for another three years, and we're very thankful. We have support from the First Peoples Program to also, you know, looking at gender issues and so on. So we have had been able to get some for ourselves as the movement. Yeah. Mm. And then, like, speaking about um, the movement's current priorities, top priorities, could you sort of summarize those? <clears throat> well, one of the things um, we have seen, I would say, lacking in the Wapshan territory is um, women taking up leadership roles. There are some women in leadership capacities at the village council level, but then not many of them are the Tushaus, which others would refer as the chiefs, but we say Tushaus in Guyana. And within the 21 communities, we only have one woman leader. She's the senior counselor of Merwell Village, and the 20 are male. Wow. And so looking at that, that is something that we have observed as the movement from the last elections that 65 women were elected to be within the councils while as 105 males mm. were elected. So there's the big gap. You can see it's not, there's no gender balance. So for this um, new project with the Equality Fund, we are holding workshops in communities to let them understand or to kind of, um, uh, what do you say, to kind of like find out what is needed or why is not women being elected as chiefs or as leaders. So we've started that and this is going to happen from last year. It's already started to March. That is just before the village elections. So communities, how can they accept women or what support is needed to see women more in leadership capacities as two shows? Mm. And so far, from the two workshop, workshops that we did, it's, it has really been interested. And the conversation has been great with the community. We've seen great participation from the villages. And it's a very interesting conversation. And I think communities are learning to accept that, yes, women can be leaders as well, you know, and especially if they're given that support by the community, mm. that they can be leaders. It's not that women cannot be leaders. We have been leading for generations in our household. So 
Why can't we lead a village? You yeah. know? So that for me is very important for us, for the women's movement, and that is something we're working towards. It's more like a little campaign drive to have women elected as leaders. Mm. Even though there might not be women, maybe um, Tushaus, but they can be the deputy Tushaus, yeah. or they can, there can be gender balance within each of our councils with, throughout the 21 villages. Yeah. That's the main goal. Amazing. Yeah. So to follow up, like, um, and I mean, it's it's like sort of an obvious question. So sorry if it's if it's a stupid question, but like, what are the um, benefits that you expect to see once more women are in leadership positions, either as deputy tushaus or as um, you know council members? Um, firstly. Um I think one of the things that we women, as indigenous women, you know, we have, we do not have access to job opportunities. So I see when women, with, with women leadership, it's something that we feel more, you know? We feel, we, we care about issues that affect us. And especially when it comes to households, um, looking at food security and all of those situations, I'm not saying that men doesn't care, but they do care. But women will have a more, I would say, a more stronger approach, you know, to, to tackle these different issues that exist within our communities. The negative um, issues, right. for example. While as, um, you know, we have a lot of alcoholism, drugs, um, alcohols in the schools, different issues that affect our communities. And as women, I know this is not something that we want our community to 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 go with. You know, this is not something. It's a negative. So I feel that when we are in leadership positions, um, that we can be able to you know tackle these different issues in a more holistic manner together, collectively with our people, and address address these issues that exist. You know, um, looking at food because when you talk about food security, it's very important. If you don't have a healthy community, how can you have people, you know? How can you do work? How can you have infrastructure? Who is going to build when you have a very unhealthy community? So looking at food, ensuring that families have at least breakfast, lunch, and dinner on their tables, children are able to have their meals, to go to school, you know, the, the social fabric of the society is more intact and everything is going well, then we'll have a peaceful community and then, all other development can fall into place once that part of the community is addressed. So, because development is important, but if you do, de do not develop people, you do not educate them, they're, they're not aware, that is a problem. You know, development is nothing when you do not address these issues there at the community level, you know. It will just be big buildings, white elephants, locked up buildings, and that's not development. Develop the people, ensure your people are, are um, I would say, they are healthy, they have food to eat, they are educated, are aware. I, I, it doesn't mean education in the sense of passing exams, but you know, they're aware, they have the information that they can speak, they can raise their concerns and so on. So that for me is very important. And I see women more addressing these things at the community level and which can be very impactful and we can have a good environment we can have a safe communities 
community, we can have safe Wapchan territory, you know, all of these things are in place. That's why we said uh, we work under five issues, health, we look at land tenure, gender, economic sufficiency, all of these things are very important in a community. And that is what we see women more like tackling the issues, especially those negative issues at the community level. Mm, wow, wow. And like speaking of food security too, right? I, people have been telling me since I got here that the area is in a little bit of a drought. Um, right down the hill, there's like, somebody's garden is like completely withered yeah. up. They were pointing it out to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, what does is, what is food security mean, especially in times like these when uh, weather patterns are less predictable and, and all of that? I said sometimes, I mean, I think, um, one of the things is that there's so much things happening and once we have that effect you know climate change affect us and it kind of compounds everything else for women especially because we have to ensure that food is on our table we have to ha um, ensure that our children have their basic needs go to school and also of course the husbands I'm not saying that we do not think about the men as well but it's more like thinking for the future and ensuring that food is available in for a situation like this, you know? And it's always good to plan and to put into action. And that is something we have not been doing as it relates to food, the food systems that exist within our territory. So many of our communities are now dependent on food from the outside, which is again so unhealthy now for us as a people. We have a lot of health issues such as chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension. In one of our communities, there are over a hundred persons with diabetes, even teenagers, you know? So we have to look at this holistically when we talk about development. It's health, education, employment, and all these things, climate change and all of these different effects you know, that we have as a people. So that's why I feel women leadership, and when you have women involved, women are at the decision-making tables, then we can have our voices heard, you know, because these, these are the situations on the ground. Many times, it's not often told to men because it's often told to a woman, you know, so, and we know what we go through. I'm not speaking here from what I heard or someone told me. I'm speaking because I'm told this every day when I go on my, um, on, on, into the fields, into the different communities. I'm told this as a woman as well, you know, this is the issues. These are the issues that exist. This is what's happening. We do not have food. We do not have the basic needs. So part of the Wapchan Wage Women's Movement is from next, from this year, we're going to support women livelihoods. That's part of the project, especially as it relates to the effects of climate change, food security, how can we, have more food security? How can we support women livelihoods, especially who, those who are working in groups, but it's not going directly to the groups, but it's going to individual women, but then they can come together as a group to hold market days and you know who is doing poultry and they can have a big sale. So that for us, we also look at that and look at the situation because often times groups are there and a project is done and it's, it, it's won by the group, but then like you do not really feel ownership. It all goes, the first phase of it, it's everyone is interested and the second phase, it's down. So we are looking more like to have 
them working in groups, but also they benefiting individually. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to so keep it engaged. And that's how, how to keep it engaged. And that's uh, something that we have been talking about to see how we can support these women and they can have more um, income for their families and also for their children, you know, who have to go to school and so on. Mm. Yeah. And so I want to ask, like, when mm-hmm. you talk about, like, assembling meetings, let's say you go to a village and then you have a meeting with different women there. And so if I understand, it's like you're going in kind of with an objective, um, but you're also doing a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharing. Yeah, can you talk about the format of these meetings? Because um, I think it would be valuable for people to... Oh, well, uh, when we go, we normally have the community meetings where we meet in the community with the women, where, you know, we speak. If we Sometimes it's on leadership, on gender concepts, or laws, environment, water protection. So all of this we would talk about, but then we'd... When you go to these meetings, it's not just everything, all the topics are so connected, right? When you talk about climate change, you have to talk about water. You have to talk about food security. These are all issues that are connected. So when you go for a meeting, then you would hear all these things because that's, that's how I'm, I'm sure even though if it's a government, government meeting, that's what happens, right? All these issues come out. All these concerns or challenges that are faced come out when you go into a community. While as the SRDC General Assembly, it's a bigger assembly where all the communities gather, representative of um, the Tushaws, councillors, elders, monitors, youth rep, women's rep, all meet and then we talk about the different issues that affect the Wapchan territory, especially, importantly, it's the land issues, the land extensions and lands that need to be titled and so on, the environment, wildlife, you know, all of that is discussed at these meetings. So they have different topics where villages are given the opportunity to raise, to say what's happening, um, to report what is happening in their committees. And then the SRDC General Assembly takes a position on what should we do or how can we resolve these issues? What do we need to write a letter? Do we need to seek support? Do we need to seek funding to address these different issues? So that's how the meeting goes really you know Mm. what actions are need to be taken you know because certain situations arise and you need to look into that matter immediately and once you have the resources to do that then you do that when when in a situation where there's nothing you can do and you need um, the help of the government then you a letter is written which is signed by all the two shows to the relevant government agencies or to the president. So that's how really an SRDC General Assembly goes, you know, decision taken collectively for the territory. And then with all of the people who appear at the meeting are kind of there in the capacity of representing? Their village, which um, they're supposed to go to their communities and say what transpired and relate that to their the bigger community meetings. And that's how it's supposed to be happening. It happens at times, but it's, sometimes it doesn't happen. Uh-huh. But because the SRDC works with communities and we have different projects, different programs that are going, so we would normally as well update the, the participants for attending the meeting on the activities of the SRDC.
um, shifting to the SRDC, the South Rupununi District Council, um, I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the interview that you're the communications officer. What are your primary goals as a communications department within the SRDC? Oh, well, presently, um, we're in developing, uh, in the process of developing this uh, communications plan. But what we really do is, because of the different projects, we have different projects happening. And what we do is try to ensure that those projects are known to the people that we work with. They understand its purpose and also how can it um, support them. So for example, we have the free prior informed consent um, booklets that are being developed in communities. Why is FPIC books being developed? FPIC is very important for us as indigenous peoples, especially when it comes to developmental activities that are happening on our land. So as part of the communications department, then we need to ensure that people understand, you know, really understand why FPIC is important, why it is much needed within our villages, why we need to really understand this. And so we would like share information on that with the communities. And uh, from my job as a communications officer, because I speak with the leaders almost every day, I have grounded information of what is happening on the ground. And as I said, there are a lot of issues that happen, not just women issues, but health, education, and all of that happens. So I would also see how I can support the communities when it comes to, you know, how do we um, streamline things to meet that to the different agencies that need to be addressed. So we work in that field as well. I'm the only one for now, but we do have a small youth media team who would like document, who have produced some um, videos and some um, stories, you know, and, and so on. But for now, we just, we have different projects, different programs that um, have, especially as it relates to culture, you know. Culture is very important and in many indigenous, I would say nations or communities you would hear, the traditions and the culture of people are dying. So in a, part of it is to how do we revive this culture? How do we get the younger generation to, to become involved or to, to be proud of who they are as an indigenous person? So like we use our social media pages to, to really promote culture and tradition and to um, make an, in, um, a Wapchan person you know, understand that this is who I am and this is who I should be proud of. So we do a lot of um, videos, dances, and so on on our social media pages. We, we also try to reach the outside audience of, um, to tell them about our work. You know, we meet in Georgetown to, to share our work about, for example, the headwaters protection. Why is the headwaters protection very important, not just to the Wapchan people, but to everyone who lives in Guyana. So we try to hold those kind of um, gatherings where we can share all of that, you know, where we share this information, where we make videos, we make flyers or brochures, and we share that to people. Um, I would say civil society in Guyana and so on. And so far it has been really working well. And all other projects that we do, we try to share about what is happening, share about our meetings, share about our work and, and so on.
So that's what we do. We write statements as well. We have, especially when there are very important issues in Guyana, at, which needs to be more like from the national context. Um, for example, climate change, we had the sale of carbon credits in Guyana. So we had to issue a statement because there, were, there was no proper FPIC mm. done as it relates, um, relates to the sale. And our communities were not aware of what is a carbon credit, what is a carbon market. So we, we went out, we did uh, flyers, like one pager, so our people can share, our people can understand it. We went to community, we held community workshops. We also have a paralegal team, which I am part of as well. So we went to communities to share about what is carbon, what is long carbon, short carbon, what is a carbon market, what is a carbon credit, um, who are the buyers, and you know, to learn everything more too about carbon credits so our people can understand what is it we're getting into because often this information doesn't reach into communities. So part of communication, we, do, we would do that, you know. We have an advocacy plan as well where we look at our, how can we advocate to have policy changes. We look at the Amerindian Act. Um, so we would do all of that. We do put out statements out there, you know, and say, we are not so happy with this and this is what you need to do. You need to properly consult us. You need to, you know, because we are dependent on the land that we use and we're worried what will happen to us in the future, maybe not now, but in the future. So we do a lot of press statements out there, and which has to be approved by the executive body uh, or else it's not put out there unless they approve it. So that's how the communication system, and of course the daily conversations with the two shows, information sharing, letter writing, all of that is part of my, my job. Yeah, which is, you know, communications is very broad. Right, yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course. It's very broad, yeah. Um, and when you said that, like, a communication, like, a, a statement to the press or something needs to be run through the executive committee before it gets out, I know that, uh, I mean, off off camera, um, Gavin Winter was telling me that the the district council meetings happen about three times a year, so I'm sure you have a, a more streamlined way to get that approval, right? Yeah, we we have we have a, a a chat that that would be sent in. Yes. Okay. That would be sent to, and they would approve and stuff. Like for example, recently we had a border controversy with Venezuela. The we also did a press statement supporting the government and the Guyanese population that this is ours, you know, and it belongs to us. And we even have our own name in the Wapchan language. You know, this is ours. This is what we know to be ours, and we support our government and. The, the Guyanese population and in stating that we stand by them. So we issue that statement as well. So we do all, I do all of that, of course, together with my colleagues and so, because I'm just the, I'm the only one at present, which I think the SRDC is exploring more to have someone else, like more um, like a communication or visibility officer soon. I hope, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so speaking of that issue with Venezuela, um, you know, talking about potentially annexing Essequibo, which is like a huge, you know, the majority of the landmass of Guyana. Um, it's interesting that you say that because I, I was following the story not super closely, but I was following it, especially because I was like, oh, I'm coming to Guyana. Let me, you know, see what's happening there. I did not hear about that statement um, that you guys put out. And I find that really interesting that I didn't hear it because it seems so 
especially relevant since we're currently in part of the territory that Venezuela would have annexed. And you hear all these statements coming out of Georgetown that are getting reported in the international media. It's interesting that I didn't. Yeah, we're hear that. the first indigenous uh, people to issue a statement before anyone else. The APA did after us, um, but we did. We did the first one, and it was because our people were concerned. You know, and our villages. They, they, even though news are the, um, we hear on the radio, their social media, but you know. Our people need assurance of maybe someone from the government, the community community said, this is what is happening because, you know, that is how it's supposed to be. So because of that, you know, we were, we put out that issues. We are also, once we had a, an activity in a community, we are also sharing information and saying, you know, we need to pray. We need to, we, we know this is our land and stand by it. Yeah. And another, um, topic that you brought up a couple times now is FPIC, Free Prior Informed Consent. Um, I wonder if you would briefly outline what that is and then say a little bit more about why it's so important that indigenous communities understand this concept. Um, when we talk about FPIC, it's very important for indigenous people. We know it's more like internationally, you are globally used by indigenous people. Some people say, oh, it's not important, but it is important for indigenous people because when you talk about especially developmental activities that can impact indigenous people's lives, you need to consult with indigenous people. As I said, that mountain of gold that you see there, it might be a mountain of gold to you, but to us as indigenous people, it's where we go to hunt, to fish, to gather. And if you destroy that, it's a secret place for us, while for you, it's it's profits. It's another place to make money. Another place to make money. This is the reason why you need to consult with indigenous people, because it can have great impacts on our lives as indigenous people, on our rivers, on our waters that we depend on for fishes, you know, because that is where we go, you know? It's not like... We live in the city, we can go in the, in the supermarket and pick up whatever, you have money. But that is how it is, especially when there is no money for indigenous people. That's where we go for our food, for our living. So that's why FPIC is important. When you do think of developmental, anything that happens on the lands, on indigenous people's lands, you must meet with them. You must properly inform them. You, they must be aware of the good things and the bad things, the negatives, the positives, the advantages, the disadvantages, and in a language that they can understand. Mm -hmm. That is very important, and that's why FPIC is very important. And oftentimes, it's just brush off, or people say, oh, it's just a jargon that is being used, but it's important, it's, it's important for us as a people. And for all indigenous people around the world because it's, it's widely used and not often adhered to, you know, by governments, by states, by other NGOs that just think about coming to make money on indigenous people's lands. So that's why it's important. Mm. And I mean, I think it's also worth saying that it's, you know, indigenous people are the first people and the people who are going to be most directly impacted by those uses. But eventually, it sort of trickles out and affects everyone the rest of us, too, exactly. right? Yes, it affects everyone. Look at what is happening with the climate today. 
because if FPIC, proper FPIC was done um, where there was logging, mining, and all this forest degradation, then we won't have this issue today. But we did things without FPIC, and that's why we end up today in this situation. So it's very important for us. And likewise, it's important for us as the Wapchan people to, when you talk about development activities, tell us the good and the bad. Not just tell us the good. Right. Yes, and how it's going to benefit us. Tell us how it's going to negatively impact us, not now, but in the future as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. So another topic that has come up a couple times now uh, that I'd really like to address is um, water protection. You were talking about headwater protection specifically and also water protection in general. Would you mind kind of getting into that? Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, the South Rupununi, which is within the Wapchan territory, that's where the headwaters of key rivers are located. When I say key rivers, that even includes the Essequibo, which is the biggest river in Guyana, and that flows straight into the Atlantic Ocean. So for us, it's very important that this headwaters be protected. Because it, when you talk about the headwaters protection, you, you're talking about water. And we all know that water is life, and without water, Maybe all of us, not everything, every living thing depends on water for survival. So importantly, it, it has to be protected. And that's why the SRDC um, has developed a water management plan, which, which entails how it's going to be protected, how it's going to be managed. And we are hoping that it can be an area that is protected. Um, by, uh, by us, of course, um, together are co-partnering with the government, especially from extractive industries such as mining. That is already in close proximity to the headwaters. So water is very important. And under last year, I concluded I did uh, workshops. I was on a fellowship with Conservation International. Um, which is part of the Amazon Indigenous uh, Women Fellowship. So I did headwaters protection in six communities, workshops talking about um, stewardship, environmental sustainability. And so I visited six communities. We are targeting mostly women and village leaders on, on the importance of the headwaters. How, was it, how is it important to them and how should we protect it? So from the research that was done, it was very interesting. Um, you know, women used water differently, again, as compared to men, because men would just go to the showers and just throw one water on them and go, <laughs> while women would tend to use more water for domestic purposes. And all of that conversation was very important, you know, even down to the mosquito nets that has repellent on it. And, when you wash it, where does it go? How does it affect the soil? Wow. So it was a very important conversation with women when it came to water. And traditionally, there are different um, ways of how uh, water is um, used and seen by women as well. You know, there are different stories um, in the 
in the Wapchan character, there's not just one type of water. There are different types of water. There are different keepers of water, which we call the spirit keepers of water. For a pool, there's one for a falls. There's one for maybe the, the source. You know, there are different, our belief is there are different um, spirit keepers or guardians of the, the waters. And if we tend to disturb them, then we suffer consequences. And like this, maybe. It's a consequence of what we have to bear, long, prolonged droughts, um, extreme flooding, you know, all because of how we disturb the waters. So because of the importance of the headwaters, especially for us, there is the Rupununi River. I'm sure you passed through the Rupununi River. Yeah. And uh, when I did my research, over 50 communities really depend on Rupununi River. And there's Rewa, there is the Kwitaro, and there's the Kujuin, which the YY people, our YY brother use, you know, for fishing. And they consume fish on a daily basis. Wow. For breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you look at that, it's very important that mining, because mining is happening already within close proximity to the headwaters and that it should not be expanded to reach into the headwaters because it can have detrimental impacts on the lives of the people in especially within the Wapchan and the Makushi in the north because water goes especially during during the floods so it's very if 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 we are going to do mining and you're going to cause pollution within all these key rivers, then the South Rupununi is going to suffer, very much suffer from the pollution of these waters. And as a people, we are going to be really affected. Have you seen pollution already from uh, authorized mining operations that are taking place there? Yes, we have seen. my. Um, there's Parabara, which has already suffered a lot of pollution, especially in women. The rate of mercury is um, in their systems is higher than the World Health Organization recommended level. Um, the survey was done in 2018, and that showed that women are already contaminated by mercury, especially those of childbearing age within the ages of 15 and 45. So those are the, the effects of of pollution that is happening. Um, we have not done any studies recently, but we are hoping that we can do some very soon with the assistance of funders and you know once we have that resources available. And you mentioned that you, you know, um, you see the government as a really key partner in protecting headwaters. Do you have any level of cooperation from the government so far? I think so far we have had some conversations with the government as relates to the protection of the headwaters, especially the key governmental agencies such as the the um, Guyana Hydrometeorological Office, um, which specifically deals with water. We have been speaking to the Protected Areas Commission, to the Guyana Forestry Commission, to the Guyana Geology and Mines Commission. So we have been trying to, to, um, to meet with them and, and you know, to have these conversations and discussions. And even looking at 
the national level as it comes it comes to water, there has also been conversation, and I think we have been attending meetings from the SRDC level with uh, this um, national water committee. Um, and I think we are the only indigenous um, organization um, who is part of that committee at the national level. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we already sort of covered this when we talked about FPIC, uh, Free Prior Informed Consent, but I'm curious about the different ways that um, either the Wapishan Wij Women's Movement or the um, South Rupununi District Council um, are engaging with the law as a tool to accomplish things? Yes, I think through the paralegal program that I stated about, uh, it was from over a year ago in 2020, 2022, November 2022. So we have 10 persons who are trained on in international law, national laws that protect indigenous people's rights. And looking at mining, looking at logging, looking at different policies that are being created at the national level. So we have been following that as a team. And the Amridian Act, which is the legislation that governs indigenous communities, um, that we have been advocating for revision, to, um, especially uh, where it doesn't, um, it, it falls short or where it's inadequate and doesn't protect indigenous people's rights. And we've been calling for it to be in line with international standards, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So we have been doing work on that, yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and teach me about your work. This has been really fascinating and, and, um, and just a great educational experience for me. Okay, thank you, Adam. Thank you, too, for, for speaking with me. And, and I'm always happy to share about the work of the Wapchat people in Guyana. Thank you so much for listening. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed today's episode. You can find The Pointed Nose wherever you get your podcasts. To see today's interview in video form, visit our YouTube channel, Ophion Media. The Pointed Nose's theme song is Transponding by Albert Ortega. <laughs>